thanks very much to Naomi. And handing on to our, our final panelist before I commentate, we have Leslie Minjamuri from SOAS at the University of London. Okay, I realize that I now stand in between you responding to Naomi, which having only heard Naomi once before, but now hearing her, hearing her again, I realize it's a very dangerous position to be in because there's a lot there. And also before Ruti, which is also a tricky place, so I will try to be quick. Um, thank you very much to Lee and to everybody else who's worked very hard to invite me out. I should say that I am not a lawyer, I'm a political scientist, but also that I've, I really don't work on Latin America. So this has been extraordinarily interesting to me. I, I obviously talk to a lot of you who work uh, on Latin America on and off because I do um, work a lot on transitional justice. But one of my biggest reactions, um, and, and I think it's a reaction so far to today as well, is that I continue to think that the world of transitional justice looks very different if you look at Latin America primarily um, than, than the world of international justice and transitional justice when you come at it more from, say, the former Yugoslavia, the ad hoc tribunals, and the international courts. And despite the merger of all these things and, and the justice cascade um, PowerPoint that, that we've seen, I still think there's something there's a way of approaching the debate that's very, very different. And I just want to mention two things that, I, that have come out of this panel and yesterday. And one is Pear's comment that it's becoming, in Latin America, increasingly about judi judicialization and not politics. And I would say the reverse is true globally. It's all about politics with the veneer of legitimacy that's been created by some very weak and very political international courts. <laughs> And I don't limit that simply to the International Criminal Court, but that's clearly the most obvious example. So that, if to the extent that we, we agree with this assessment of Latin America, I think it's really very different elsewhere. Um, and then Leslie Bethel's comments, which I really appreciated and have always appreciated Leslie Bethel's lectures since I first saw them in 1990, um, when he said we need to really think about the consequences, I also thought that was fascinating because from where I sit and the debates that I engage in, the only thing that people talk about are the consequences. So again, it, it, it raised for me the question of whether that is, I know that transitional justice isn't your primary um, concern, but whether that reflects a different discourse that's going on in Latin America from the discourse that's going on amongst those of us, especially people like Phil, who work um, on the International Criminal Court and engage in a different set of debates many of which geographically have become focused, as you know, on Africa. So with that as um, background, let me, say, um, let me say a few things about a certain set of changes. And again, I, I recognize that I'm really only getting at one part of what's changed and what I think is very significant in the global context and the debate about international accountability. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some trends in practice and especially in discourse amongst public international actors, but I think it goes more, it's more widespread than that. I would like to say a few words about why there's a focus, and this is something that I think is absolutely crucial, but clearly not in Latin America, so it might sound like what in the world is she talking about, um, except for to Phil, who's writing another book on this topic. Um, uh, why there's so much focus at the global level on ongoing conflicts, and what, what I'm trying to think about, and again, I don't know about Latin America, is what does that mean for Latin America? The sort of global focus on ongoing conflict by the International Criminal Court, what are the repercussions of that for the sorts of things that are going on in Latin America and in other cases in the future in which we begin to look at questions of accountability 
long into a transition or, or after a war, um, in cases of war, has, have been resolved. And then to raise a few questions about, I think, the problems and issues that this really uh, that brings up. Um, so on, very quickly on trends, there's plenty of people who have done terrific work, um, especially uh, our organizers, Andrew, Trish, and Lee Payne's book is absolutely phenomenal in terms of the data that they put together on trends and, and a lot of other things, but also Catherine and others. Um, but I think one of the important things, and just to put it back out there, and it's something that I've worked on as well, there's a lot more justice as we've seen um, from Catherine and her very distinguished, not at all, um, misplaced partner. Um, there's a lot more justice, and there's also a lot more other things, amnesty, reparations, lustration. There's a whole lot going on, and I would, to answer Jeff's question, say there absolutely is an interaction, in my view, between these dynamics. It's not a one-way interaction. It's a, it's a very much an interactive and dynamic process, and then there, there's, there can be no sense in which, the, if to the extent that there's a rise of amnesty, that it's linked up with what we might refer to as a justice cascade. Uh, the silence that is taking place in many very high-profile peace negotiations, I would argue, is also very much linked up with the justice cascade. So the first trend would be there's more justice, but there's a lot more of everything else, including silence, not necessarily in numbers, but in terms of profile. Um, the second thing that I think is really crucial that's changed is that the timing, and, and I do tend to look more at cases of war and justice and accountability, so again, it's different from the Latin American cases, but the timing has changed. If the old model, as we all know it, was Nuremberg and waiting for things to be settled, the new model is both we threaten justice and accountability in phases of coercive diplomacy, and we solve it with this with respect to the debates and the, uh, the threats that were issued by the U.S. government leading up to its, its intervention in Iraq um, in 03. So justice and accountability has permeated the pre-war phase of conflicts. It's clearly permeated ongoing conflict um, and, it, it, and ongoing conflict and peace negotiations. And then, of course, all of you here know better than I that it remains an issue many decades after transitions have begun and after wars have ended. So there's this question of delayed justice. I would argue, though, that when you move away from Latin America and you, and you look at the world of international justice and accountability in terms of how it's debated in the press and at conferences and how it's practiced, that the focus, maybe not empirically in terms of the numbers, but the intense focus right now, has really been on the role that accountability and especially international criminal justice and as opposed to it amnesties can and should play in ongoing conflict. And that's really, which again is why this is a very unusual room for me and um, for a few others here, that's really where I think much of the debates uh, are taking place. I just spent a few days at Wilton Park when the goal there was to bring together many of the UN mediators with Human Rights Watch and the ICC, and once again, this is the second time they've held a conference like this in, I think, two years, to really focus on what is the role of justice and accountability uh, in the peace process. And I would note that in the, the time period laid between those two conferences, the level of skepticism, even amongst those who are very committed, has gone dramatically up. Um, the third, and again, these things are tightly linked, the third change, which I think is notable, uh, but it it, I was rethinking it after uh, Professor Bethel's comments, is that the change in the international debate or discourse surrounding justice 
has shifted. On the one hand, there's clearly a normative consensus. I don't think you find many public officials saying, I won't talk about Latin America, but certainly surrounding the politics of the court, saying that accountability and international criminal justice are not important. I don't, see, I don't think you see a critique, an official critique um, lodged. Um, but there's also the rationales uh, that support this normative consensus, I think have also narrowed, at least at the international level, to be focused on material consequences, not, on, not really on normative consequences, although that's clearly there, and not really on just the inherent moral value of prosecution. Um, that there's really a focus on what is it, and this is why I was so struck by what you said, what is it that, uh, that prosecuting brings? Does it bring peace? Does it bring a democracy? Does it deter? And I think of all these things that we've talked about uh, uh, accountability and justice bringing, it's really this focus on deterrence and ending wars and stabilizing post-conflict situations that has trumped um, and really, and that, that at some level, this is a radical shift in the discourse of international accountability with some very, um, it's probably a necessary shift given where the courts engage, but it, with some very, very significant outcomes. Um, three were three sort of comments on why we've gotten there. Um, again, I think it's an interactive process. Uh, the, the link between this focus on consequences as being crucial, and especially material consequences, and especially deterrence, is crucially linked up with the role of the ad hocs, and or especially the, the ICTY and the ICC, in engaging in ongoing conflicts. It becomes very, very difficult to make the case for engaging in ongoing conflict if you don't adopt a consequentialist logic, because there really is no other very strong argument for why why one would engage at that point in time where if it's not if, if justice does not have the capacity to affect the peace process why not wait so these two things are very much linked so that the end of the cold war and the politics surrounding the creation of the icty between 92 and 95 if you look at that process you see the again the a real focus in terms of the discourse and the articulation of being about justice in real time a, a, a sort of push on the part of advocates to bring the timing and the locus of accountability right into the heart of the peace process. Um, I think the second thing that's, and, and we've seen a this in a series of cases since, but I would put Bosnia out there as the first very important one, and the politics and the, and the empirics of that are absolutely fascinating. Um, Kosovo in 1999 was clearly crucial, but there are then, of course, all the cases that are relevant right now um, that, that we look at in contemporary international politics through the lens of the International Criminal Court. The second reason why I think this, is, this change has really taken place has to do with the organizational logic of a new fledgling international institution and an imperative constrained by a particular temporal jurisdiction, July 2002. Um, and a desire to really get the agenda moving. If you can't look before a certain time period, it pushes you into a frame where you're naturally looking at a going conflicts. And if you listen, um, as those of you here clearly have, I think it was when Phil brought um, Ocampo here one of the last times, I think he's a regular visitor, visitor at Oxford. He, he, he used the language off the record, not for attribution, um, but I think he's subsequently used the language as well, not for attribution and for attribution. Uh, that links up international justice as a tool for deterring conflict, for, as a tool of peace building, 
as a tool for restraining violence. I have the direct quote and I'm happy to share it, but all of you have heard it, so this is not new. There's no sense, and there is a sense in which other people, his number two and others, shy away from those arguments, but I think the leadership, and we have to take it seriously, very clearly sees justice as a tool of peace building. Um, so let me say, uh, let me just sort of throw four, four things that I think come out of this. First of all, I should put my cards on the table. I, I feel strongly that if you are going to pursue justice and accountability during times of ongoing conflict, the only way to assess it is in terms of its consequences, and I think there's a very strong moral reason to make this case, um, which is obviously based on the idea that ending conflicts uh, has a particular moral value attached to it, saving lives. Um, so I think it's probably given the move into this realm, which I think is deeply problematic and not where things should be, that that type of justification is right. What are the problems that it, that it raises? One is it creates very high expectations for what justice and accountability can do. It's very easy and right to sell justice and accountability, international criminal justice, on the grounds that it's the right thing to do. But once you begin selling it on the grounds that it can deliver peace by marginalizing key indicted perpetrators from the peace process, and then all the ducks line up and you've got a peace settlement, which will be enforced, um, you're creating a very, very high standard, and really the only way to go is to fail. Um, so I think there's a, there's a problem of management which, which risks a longer-term erosion of support for this particular kind of international justice, which is a very, very highly visible kind of international justice. Or, and perhaps the least worst uh, outcome, is just the, marginaliz the marginalization of this kind of international justice. Okay, so we have this court, and it does these things, and we know it's not going to work, and I think this is probably, and I'm sure Phil can say more, I think this is what's happening right now in Sudan, certainly by those who are leading the negotiations. Well, we're going to carry on. He's not going to be arrested anytime soon, Bashir, and our role is to carry on. And, and, and I think the comments go even further than that in terms of it not having been a great idea. Um, secondly, um, the, the, the idea, as all of you know, behind the International Criminal Court was a move away from what the ICTY really looked like insofar as it was giving precedence, it has been intended to give precedent to local and national or national level trials or national level ownership of issues of justice and accountability through the complementarity regime. And it seems to me very difficult once you begin to engage in conflicts that are ongoing for those, that those states will meet the requirements of willing and able. And this is everything to do with the timing at which justice and accountability are being pursued. And everything to do with the fact that, although it's very much debated, and the lawyers in the room can tell us where that debate sits, um, but it's very much so far, my understanding is being interpreted as being about legal complementarity and not about the cha-cha or other sorts of alternatives which and this was the question I really wanted to ask Philip Soas when he spoke was, you know, could we have, could we have Gachacha now if we were starting out? And I, my instinct is no, I don't see how it would, but, you know, that's debated. Certainly Human Rights Watch would say no. Sorry. Okay. I'll, I'll finish before five so we can get to Naomi. Um, so that, the second, the second issue is that it really raises very, very serious questions for 
complementarity. And this, this isn't a problem for Latin America, but only because the International Criminal Court is new. But if we try to think about, you know, what, what are the implications of the current trend in the global accountability regime um, for efforts to investigate in a delayed fashion uh, questions of justice and accountability, in other cases down the line, that will come under its jurisdiction, um, I think it, in a sense it removes a, an international resource. It removes a very, very important resource because the International Criminal Court so far has not been very interested in focusing on conflicts that aren't intensely political and intensely visible and intensely relevant, and by relevant I mean with respect to the global, the international agenda of international peace and security, as opposed to international accountability and justice. Um, the third, I'll just say two more because I'm coming down to time. I think that moving into this, this phase of ongoing conflict also creates very important problems, and this is not to say that these problems don't exist everywhere else and in cases of delayed justice, but it even it, it, it intensifies the problem of the capacity of a court to appear to be either neutral or impartial in its pursuit of justice, and certainly anybody who's looking at Uganda understands the problem of that, but also in the case of Sudan. Um, and then finally, and I think this, this came up yesterday from somebody asked a question about sequencing. What I've seen when I listen to mediators um, and policymakers and advocates talking off the record about sequencing, which is I think the, the, the other big problem that uh, it has become more problematic because of this focus on, going, on ongoing conflict. It becomes extraordinarily difficult to talk in any real way about sequencing because there is no sequence because we're doing peace, justice, military intervention, maybe, sometimes, usually not, um, and everything else all at the same time. So you can talk about sequencing all you want until the ICC puts down an indictment, and that is your sequence. Um, and my and my reading of this is that people are not people who are committed normatively and actively through their institutional roles are not delighted about this constraint, but that it is a very real constraint. Um, and so I think those are sort of the four issues. I would also put out there in some of the work that I've done on a war and justice data set that what we see at least at the level of correlation is that delayed justice, even by a little bit, um, tends to, regardless of the type of mechanisms, mechanism that is used, tends to have a higher correlation with lasting peace than anything that's pursued earlier on in the process.